Hi, dear youth, this is Will, the programmer of the Goway Film Flaw. I'm just here to quickly say that though this is the last regular episode of this season of the Goway Film Podcast, we have an exciting announcement for you and Irish film fans in particular planned for next week. So stay tuned to our social feeds or keep an eye on our website. And I hope you all will be excited for what we have in store. And back to today's episode, it's a bumper one. We're bringing you the condensed version of this year's Goway Film Flaw pitching competition. If you haven't already seen the pitches live at this year's festival or watch them back on our YouTube channel, or even if you have, this is a really interesting way to listen to the filmmakers' pitches, particularly if you're a writer or filmmaker looking for insight on how to pitch future projects. It's interesting to just listen without any visual aids or distractions and ask yourself if the project pitch holds up even when you're not in the room. It's like that story about the Kennedy-Nixon debate and the question over who won, depending on whether you were listening on radio or watching on television. So you're about to hear 10 finalists give the elevator pitch for their project to our three judges, Sarah Dillon, manager of the Western Region Audiovisual Producers Fund, Owen O'Fuelon, head of film for the finance and production company Sharp House in London, and the writer and story consultant, Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. Our MC is Ralph Christians, and here he is now. Enjoy. The first contestant is Emmett McMullen. He's from Newtown Abbey. He has written four short films, which he also produced and directed. And he has written three complete feature scripts. His project title today is Insurrection. It's a historical drama. Emmett, will you please start? Thank you. Um, adventure, humanitarian, revolutionary, hero, traitor. Who was Roger Casement? Insurrection is the incredible true story of Roger Casement. A diplomat and knighthood of the British Empire, they are executed as a traitor for his role in Ireland's Easter Rising of 1916. The film begins with Roger Casement awaiting trial in the Tower of London, the last of the surviving leaders of the Rising. Although Roger is the only leader permitted a trial, he faces a similar fate. It is here Roger meets John Abernott, a British Army Major assigned to sketch the condemned man. It starts as two enemies forced together, forms into mutual respect. As Roger talks about the offence which led him to rebelling against the empire he once served. Roger's trial is one of the first show trials of the 20th century that captured headlines across the world. During the high-profile trial, the British Home Office leaked Roger's alleged black diaries to the press, indicating a promiscuous and then illegal gay lifestyle. The leak was not only a character assassination intended to condemn Roger to execution, but to destroy his legacy. As the verdict nears and public opinion turns against Roger, he must find the courage and strength to accept his fate and deliver one last rousing speech. Insurrection fuses courtroom drama, character study of a man not only fighting for his life, but fighting to discover his place in the world. The oppression he faced, the personal discrimination he suffered are still as present today as they were then. A film in the mold of The Name of the Father and Brecker Morant. Roger was a complex man, a misunderstood man, but mostly a largely forgotten man. It's time to tell the world his story. This was very well timed. Yes, on the button. Sarah, will you start and tell me what you think or what questions you have? Oh, Ralph, you're going to put me in the hot seat like Emmett up first. Firstly, yep. Emmett, well done for a great, very yeah. great pitch. Never easy to go first. Um, Roger's a story, Roger Casement's story is one that I'm quite familiar with. I think I've seen a couple of documentaries about it. What made you choose to take the angle of a courtroom drama? Um, well, basically, whenever we researched into Roger Casement's uh, life, 
Um, you can make three films, really, to tell the, the true story. Um, but we thought that uh, in terms of drama, the, the court uh, case was really where we should feature the, the, the film. Uh, interestingly enough, John Ebernoff was actually a true person who actually did, you know, sketches, uh, sketched Roger before um, he went on trial. So really, we're telling the story through John Ebernoff's eyes. Uh, so we just thought that was a good link into the, you know, what made Roger the person he was, etc. So we just felt that the courtroom scene would tell really well with flashbacks, going back to show the, the few events that really shaped, um, like I was saying, what turned him from a, a member of the British Empire to rebelling against it. Very good. Okay, Mary Kate. Great work, Emmett. Like that was really well done. And again, I think like most Irish people have some idea of the story of Roger Casement, but a wider audience doesn't, and that's who you're making it for. So it's really well overdue. So fantastic that you're going to do that. Um, I thought you did a, a great job. It was a good idea to compare it to other films like Break of Morant and In the Name of the Father, like because I immediately think, oh, the courtroom drama is going to break out into loads of action. You said something about how like the plan of, you know, the empire was to destroy his legacy and to some extent that worked. So I think you could say at the end, like part of what your project's going to do is restore his legacy, like the Alan Turing project did, you know, there was this miscarriage of justice. Um, so yeah, your delivery felt a tiny bit. I mean, I know you were up against the clock and you were the first one. Were you reading it? Uh, yes, I just got the, just the notes to the side. So um, yeah, I was just uh, I was practicing all day to get it right, but just the last um, time I've done it, I messed up in a few words. So um, yeah, I do have it on a split screen. Yeah, I mean, it's fine and it did really well and you, did, you got so much across in 90 seconds, but you might have connected a little bit better if it was a tiny bit more conversational, you know, but yeah. it will be the next time you do it in, you know, for real to a real producer, you know, it would be better to stumble over a couple of words and be more chatty, I think, but it's, it's a great pitch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Owen, what's your opinion? Hey, Emmett, how's it going? Um, yeah, firstly, well done for, for getting across the line and getting it done on time. And being the first one, it's it's always tough. Um, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting project. I mean, I think Irish history has so many great historical figures that haven't been kind of mined properly for drama. Um, and what I have for you is, is a question, essentially, which is, is, where is the core drama of this story? Is it going to be about the flashbacks? And is that general arc going to occur across various points in time? Or is the real drama about what's going to happen in the court case? Because what I need to know is, is it really a court case drama or is that just a framing device to tell Roger's life? Um, well, it's kind of a mix, really. Um, I think Roger was probably one of the most complex characters I think um, I've ever um, researched or heard about as well. Um, so I think with the, the court case itself, um, that's whenever his, uh, I suppose his private life was brought into the, the public fold. Um, so for me to sort of have a film that uh, you know where the private life is discussed, I have to show where did it resonate from, um, which is why the the, the flashbacks are told. Um, obviously, the flashbacks are a great chance of uh, showing and not telling as well. Instead of, uh, I mean, I've read the transcripts through the the court case and out there, so it's trying to really summarize something that's going to be, I suppose, entertaining. Um, so that's why I need to kind of show the flashbacks. I think they work really well on how they interact with um, the, the the court case itself. Um, so I'm, I'm probably on about my sixth draft at the minute and um, we've had really good feedback 
um, re uh, regarding the, the actual structure and tone of it. Um, so we have. Great. And are those flashbacks going to kind of show the scale of the world in a kind of a, I suppose, a Michael Collins-esque kind of way? Um, the, the early draft actually focused a lot of his time in Africa, but um, I suppose, you know, we have to be realistic with budgets as well. I don't think we can have elephants in it. Uh, so really what I'm trying to do with the script now is um, to, it's, it's kind of like a character study of Roger himself. He was so complex, so interesting. So it's not really focused around the events of the time, but more about his personal relationships with those closest to him. Mm -hmm. And it does give an indication of, um, I mean, the first flashback is Ireland 1904 to 1906. And that was really the start of where the IRB really reshaped. And that was really the, the foundations for the, the 1916 rising. Great. Thank you very much, Emmett. This was a good start into our, our pitching. And now we come to the second contestant. It's Stephen Murphy. He joins us from Vancouver in Canada. He has uh, written live action and stop motion short films. He did music videos, he did video concepts, and he developed also and co-directed a film called The Light of Day, which premiered at the Galway Film Flower six years ago. We look forward to hear your idea, Stephen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to my pitch. Uh, the name of my screenplay is The Follies of Herbert Lane. Uh, this is a story that I've written over the last two years on and off while working here in Vancouver in the film industry. Uh, this is a story I'd like to direct myself, so I'm really looking for a producer to help get it made. Um, so uh, the, the story is based on the true story of the Pike Theatre uh, and the married couple who ran it together, Carolyn Swift and Alan Simpson. Um, so the story begins in 1953, it's opening night and Carolyn discovers her husband in the arms of another woman. So this is a disaster, she's distraught. She throws herself into her work, ends up discovering a little known playwright by the name of Brendan Behan. Now, Brendan's a bit of a wild man, a bit of a drinker, uh, but they end up forming an unlikely friendship and together they bring his play, The Queer Fellow, to the stage for the first time. Uh, Brendan soon goes on to betray this trust by uh, selling the rights of the play behind her back for beer money. Later, while staging a Tennessee Williams play by the name of The Rose Tattoo, uh, some confusion over an invisible condom leads to Alan being arrested and the rest of the cast and crew of the play being threatened with arrest if the show continues. So things look bad for the theater until uh, a group of protesters gather outside the theater to obstruct the arrest. And at the head of this group of protesters is Brendan Behan, the man himself, uh, the living, breathing soul of 1950s Dublin Bohemia. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mary Kate, will you start? Bang up job, Stephen. That was really fantastic. Like really beautifully done. You know, like, you know, you just have to say Brendan Bean and we're all in, right? <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, again, maybe not as well known as he could be, like Roger Casement outside of Ireland. So, you know, these are stories that uh, you know, definitely the wider world, we have them to share with them. But I thought you did a beautiful job of setting the scene. And I love this idea that like we think of 1950s Ireland as everybody having been super conventional and completely repressed, but that wasn't the case. You know, there are always Bohemians and 
aardvards and you know I came up through theatre and the story of the rose tattoo is just still famous lore isn't it like you know mm. I came up you know in the 80s and you know you're obviously a lot younger than that like you know but like the the, the, the path that they forged is really interesting but I also thought you did a great job of putting all the interpersonal drama right in there and you did something beautiful which is you pitched the premise and not the plot and I always love when someone does that like it's just like you know, really great work. So thanks so much. Thank you very much. Owen, what's your opinion? Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Um, I get very good pitch, very clear, um, really confident. Uh, so, and yes, Brendan Behan again, another, another really interesting character. Why do you want to tell this story? Well, so many reasons, but um, for me, I'm, I've just always been really fascinated about this concept of Bohemia, you know, these, these small kind of clusters of people who come together and create something out of nothing. It's just fascinating. Like, I've, I've always been fascinated by, like, the lost generation in Paris or like, Greenwich Village in the 1960s. So when I kind of heard this story about what they called Bagatonia, which was the Bohemian scene in post-war Dublin, um, it, it's just this kind of mix of people is so unique and so fascinating and so distinctly Irish as well. Um, like at this time, you would have had pubs in Dublin would have writers and painters and playwrights mixing with ex-IRA men who are just out of prison, uh, people dodging the drafts out of Britain, American GIs over in university. And I think the work that was created in this era really shone through in, in um, just how diverse Dublin was in this time. Um, yeah, it's just something I'm fascinated by. I love, I love the whole feel of the theatre and... Um, those are the kind of driving forces, but also the, the story is quite is quite significant. I feel for Irish culture, like it's it's really a, it's the story of the first time the government directly intervenes to censor a work of theatre in Ireland. Um, so I feel like it's just it just feels like an essential story um, that we really should tell about Ireland and um, and particularly these characters, Carolyn and Alan, who were um, they're kind of outsiders in an, in a group of outsiders in a way because Carolyn was a a Jewish lady from London working in a, a predominantly Protestant industry in the theatre in a very increasingly Catholic country. So, um, yeah, those are some of the reasons. Uh, I, I think they're great reasons. I think maybe one or two of them could be built into your pitch, uh, especially the significance of the story and, and why why we should care about that. So I, I would I would consider inserting that in a little bit somewhere in Perfect. those ninety right. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Owen. And Sarah, now it's your turn. Well, Cahorska, Stephen, I think that was a great pitch. You certainly managed to give us a great sense of the world, the ambitions you have for it, the colour, the diversity there. So that's really exciting, actually, to have a sense of the world of a film just from 90 seconds. Um, and you have a lot of really colourful characters in there as well. And um, Some we know, some we know less. You can play around with our perceptions of who Behan was or, or even those characters, Carolyn and Alan. And um, I suppose what I wanted to ask you is like, as is the film, and I know for me is like this could ex expand out into a TV series. It's got this sense of a returnable world, and you've got so many great moments within it. I could see it playing as a, as a as a longer piece. But for me, in the film, who's is it? Carolyn's story, and if so, what is her journey within the story? Um, again, because you mentioned quite a few characters, I just wanted to get to to the hub of of whose POV it is from. Okay, so um. Yeah, it's, it's a feature film. The script's actually written. Um, but, and yeah, it's Carolyn's POV, so she's the main character. So um, it opens with us kind of following her 
day as the theater is about to open for the first time and she's managing everybody. She's making sure everybody's comfortable and they got everything they need. And then she discovers her husband's infidelity. And this kind of leads her on a, on a sort of separate journey uh, within the theater. The two of them stay in the theater, but they continue. She goes kind of off in her own direction. She doesn't so much look for um, acceptance from Alan or permission from Alan to pursue Brendan specifically. Um, and we really follow as she kind of navigates this this bohemian world that although she loves the theater, she really, she's really challenging her own views of um, like what it means to be a married woman, what it means to be in a faithful relationship, what it means to create. Um, so we follow that journey. And then as things are kind of coming to a head, this whole case with the rose tattoo and the censorship debacle occurs and it kind of, while it seems like everything is going to kind of go one way, everything ends up they have to kind of, Alan and Caroline kind of have to reunite in the face of this major public um, uh, kind of onslaught from the press and the government. Um, so yeah, it's very much Caroline's journey. She's the, she's the main protagonist and um, yeah, that's where the drama is. It's, an, it's just in her struggle to kind of self-realize her, her creative and romantic goals. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. Now we come to the third contestant. It's Alice McDowell. She's from Galway. And uh, she is a documentary filmmaker and she's moving through multiple countries in her project, Cultures and Communities. It's called Rain Song and it's her first feature documentary. Alice. Thank you, Ralph. Remember when Australia was on fire, apocalyptic scenes, a brutal testimony to the climate crisis and the fragility of our natural world. I watched from afar, helpless as the blaze got closer and closer to my grandparents' home in New South Wales. And it was in this moment that an idea I've been brewing for some time not only became timely and relevant, but for me became overwhelmingly urgent. And that's a feature documentary, um, a cinematic ode to rain uh, and, and a cinematic ode to the human act of rain making. From the waterfalls on the White Nile of Uganda, where rainbows are worshipped as links to the heavens that make the rain, to rural Mexico, where during the planting season, uh, women engage in ceremonious rounds of fist fighting, blood for rain, and to India, where two frogs are married in a traditional Hindu wedding ceremony in a bid to please the rain gods. All over the world, humans have always called the rain with song, dance, prayer, and ceremony, and by and by weaving together a rich and diverse collection of these rituals, this song becomes a cinematic prayer and a message of a message of healing for a world on fire. Thanks. Thank you very much. Alice, Owen, will you start this time? Hey Alice, how's it going? Um, Thanks very much for that. <laughs> it, was, it was quite an interesting uh, pitch and, and very unique idea for a documentary. Um, it's, it's got a very distinct, um, I suppose, premise, but also I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly the way you presented it, 
made it feel like quite a kind of a silent observational documentary, a little bit like Baraka and and those documentaries which I can't pronounce. Um, <laughs> but um, so is that the is that the intention? Is it's supposed to be very observant and 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 really just a visual experience of how these cultures kind of deal with the weather? And and finally, one last question: Why, like, can someone please stop the rainmakers in Ireland because it's it's like ridiculous? <laughs> Interestingly, I, I kind of I do see Ireland as having a role in this, the Irish voice having a role in this documentary almost as a, a thread to weave all these different stories together. But ultimately it's it's like a it's a story, a global story that we're all a part of. Um, so basically, yes, uh, observational documentary is where I'm most what I'm most passionate about. And I would see these as kind of small observational vignettes where we have a small story going on, but it is very much kind of uh, drawing people into the experience um, in an observational way. And yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to think of like, why, why on earth would you make this in Ireland? Um, because we certainly don't need any rainmaking rituals here. But I, I kind of like the idea of the Irish voice having this kind of being infused with the rain. And even if you look at all the poetry and literature and, and language, I mean, I was looking up words and phrases Askelga, and there are hundreds of them to describe different types of rain. And I see that as a way to kind of narrate the story in a very creative way and link all these different kind of vignettes together. Great, thank you. Sarah. Hi, Alice, how are you? Um, congratulations. I think it really um, potentially quite a, a quirky sell in terms of a documentary with a very universal language and appeal, which is always something you look for with feature documentary. Um, and also quite timely, obviously, with what is going on environmentally right now. Um, so you've hit on something quite perfect there, maybe in Zeitgeisty, which, which is really great. Um, just to pick up on something that Owen said, I do think just in your pitch, it would be helpful maybe to have one or two comp titles just to kind of give us a sense of your approach and your visual world is it a you know something even like Henry Glassy which which Pat Collins is just about to show with the flower that just to kind of give us a sense of where you want to go with this um as a filmmaker and again it, it, it just really helps us then to kind of imagine the film you're you're trying to tell I mean I think you may have answered my question actually in mm -hmm. your in your response to Owen but I was just going to ask you about your approach is this going to be you know, a narrative, a voiceover-led documentary, would it involve interviews or have you kind of thought through the kind of structure of it? Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned, I think Owen mentioned Baraka and of course there are some similarities in this kind of global story about humanity, definitely. But I guess one of the cinematic references I'd take is a film by Tony Gatliff. I don't know if you know Gadjo Dillo which is the story of, of Roma music traveling through different countries. And they are short observational standalone vignettes, but they're very nicely woven into each other and there is this kind of journey. So I would see it in a, in a similar sense that um, there'd be kind of like a parallel narrative, visually telling the story of the world coming to this state of, of crisis that kind mm. of weaves them together. And then the, the added thing of a bit of voiceover, but not in a, but more in a poetic sense, using mm. probably a lot of the Irish language. Very interesting. Well, look, like I said it sounds very interesting. Try to sell a region where you get four seasons in two hours. <laughs> it's the <laughs> one thing I say to people when they come west, we can't guarantee the weather. 
but it sounds very interesting. So thank you, Alex. Thank you, Sarah and Mary Kate. Hi, Alice. That was just fantastic. Really, you did a fantastic job. And um, you know, the one thing, like I know when I've heard a good pitch, when I'm like, ah, I want to actually sit down and have a coffee with you now and ask you a bunch of questions. You know, um, so um, you know, and I I thought of lots of things. Uh, one is I should just, in case you don't know, in Botswana. Pula means rain, and instead of hooray, hooray, they say pula, 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 but it's also the name of their currency, you know? Um, yeah. And I have an African friend who moved here when he was a kid, and he was like, why do why do Irish people not like the rain in my country? <laughs> yeah, we have a festival when there's rain. So I think it's really interesting to have an Irish perspective on this story. And I think there are ways of putting like drama in. I thought it was very interesting, brave, interesting, resonant, that you said it's a kind of a prayer. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is like, what difference does it make when people approach a subject with faith instead of fear? So, you know, we could say it's a superstition and maybe we don't believe that the rain gods respond to the prayers of people in Mexico, but how does it change how we interact with the earth and with our crops and, you know, with all of those things, if we, you know, have faith in, instead of fear? Like, so how do rituals change us? I think it's a really interesting question. I have just one question for you. Um, it is cinematic. It's really cinematic. And I could imagine loving to go to the cinema and give myself up to something like this for 90 minutes or two hours. Do you think people will watch it on Netflix on a smaller screen? I mean, I hope so. I think most, um, I mean, so many of us do watch really, really cinematic documentaries on our small, which are sometimes very big screens. I mean, like, of course, just, to go for that cinematic look mm -hmm. and hope that it, well, hope that it does have a life on the small screen because it is cinematic, but it's also, as you said, like the, the whole crux of this film, it is about rituals and it's not about whether they work or not, like individually, it's about, it's about that human, um, that kind of deeply human thing to, to and what we're kind of losing um, in terms of listening to our environment and seeing what's happening and responding in a collective way. So it's more about that. So I, I hope it resonates not only on a big cinematic level, but on a, on a kind of heart level. Well, the other thing I give you a big thumbs up for, Alice, is you've taken a dreary and doer subject and <laughs> gave us a really uplifting pitch. So, you know, well done, thank you. Well, I am, I am, I'm not Irish, I am Australian. I'm a, I'm a rain refugee because I grew up in the droughts. <laughs> Um, I've been here 10 years and I still love the rain. Thank you very much, Alice. We come to the fourth contestant, Connor Dowling from Bray. He has written TV pilots and uh, numerous shorts, and he has also written stuff for stand-up comedy. And his project today is called The Connor. We are very excited to hear what you tell us. Thank you. Have you ever heard the expression, you really get to know someone after they go missing? In this tense, psychological, limited series, Moya learns disturbing secrets about her estranged twin sister, Freya. Frustrated with the police search, journalist Moya launches an investigative podcast to find answers. Battling her own demons, Moya is the only person left who cares about her unstable sister's whereabouts. 
When she connects Freya to an infamous cult in the west of Ireland, she must infiltrate them while secretly recording them in their secluded country mansion. They accept and admire her and eventually worship her just like they did with her visionary sister. Still no sign of Freya. Moya slips deeper into the cult's seductive grip in a drug-fueled haze of sex, sinister rituals and betrayal. When police discover a body with Freya's description and DNA, it's an obvious suicide, case closed. But something doesn't feel right to Moya. A shocking twist reveals that Freya faked her own death to escape the cult, but soon the two sisters will face each other one last time. With com complex characters and a rich cinematic atmosphere, audiences of The Chosen love gripping HBO miniseries like Sharp Objects and True Detective and addictive true crime podcasts like West Cork and Serial. I'm Connor Dowling, and this is The Chosen. Thank you. I mean, the timing is perfect. Because... <laughs> Owen, Thank you. What do you think? Um, I mean, like, this is this is definitely in my territory. You know, I'm, I'm developing a couple of psychological thrillers at the moment. Um, not so much on the TV side. Uh, I mean, one slight concern I have is, is certainly limited uh, TV series aren't as sexy to broadcasters as you may okay. think. Sure. Um, and perhaps there's something within the mythos and the cults that may give you an opportunity to broaden that into other series a, a little bit. Uh, well, not so much, but, you know, um, a little bit like, um, I don't know, uh, um, not True Detective, but uh, Fargo sure. or something like that. Where they're, they're kind of interconnected. Um, I really like the podcast element, but it felt underused in your pitch okay um because it's quite a unique idea for a podcast person to kind of use that to find somewhere but then obviously it seems to disappear when she infiltrates the cult so it, does that still have a role within the story and the narrative absolutely like i suppose one of the reasons why i wanted her to be a podcaster is because i see that there's this really fascinating modern movement of uh, female podcasters who are like these modern, complicated noir detectives in, in real life. These are real people who are following active cases. So I see her basically narrating this story um, while uh, com commentating on her podcast. Um, and that gets more complicated the deeper she gets into the cult and the more she starts to you know, uh, drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I see as being uh, involved right up to the very end. Um, yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Mary-Kate. Yeah, thank you so much, Connor. Like that was really well done. And you know, actually, you know, I was a little anxious because I thought you were reading it, but you did such a lovely job. And I happened to glance at the clock at 60 seconds and I was like, I'm all in and you've only been talking for 30 seconds. <laughs> so like, yeah, that was really, really well done. Um, same as Owen, I, you know, I'm aware that like, you know, limited, you know, series may, so I, I just wonder, could it be a feature film? But you don't have to answer that. It's just a thought. Um, I wonder if you know the Armistead Maupin book, The Night Listener? Um, I've heard of that, but I'm not familiar it's with it, actually. It's a great movie that hardly anybody's seen, like uh, Robin yeah. Williams being serious. But have a look at it because it's similar. But I really liked actually what you said in answer to Owen's question. And right. you nearly, you almost gave me too much plot. because, sure. I, But that's just, you know, I was all in yeah. after you've been talking for 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. And then I started to 
struggle to follow it so yes. i if i were you like and i mean just it, you know you don't have to do this but um what you said in answer to owen's question about like these women podcasters who have become detectives effectively mm, yeah. because they're following a story i'd put that in instead of giving me more yes. and more and more plot because i started to spin out wondering how did she fake her suicide with the same <laughs> dna and da, da, da. so it might have been too much plot when you could have been talking more about because that's a great answer but it's also good you know to have one in your pocket but really well done i found thanks it. so much thanks mary that's okay. brilliant okay sarah uh, so well done connor again really enjoyed that your dulcet tone certainly helped to uh, <laughs> uh create this air of mystique and intrigue around it um so i think that 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 was really good and again like mary kate i was very much drawn into it very very quickly um, loved the hook of the podcast idea as well and this idea of having a very strong active female character at, at the centre of this film. I just had a question I suppose around the cult and maybe some of the rules of the world around that cult yeah. because again that is another potentially unique selling point here so just to kind of maybe understand that a, a tiny bit more just going to huge detail but you know the basic the basic rules of the cult absolutely like i mean i suppose when you say cult it kind of can mean a lot of uh, different things mm. to a lot of people and i suppose one of the things i wanted to avoid was uh, a very stereotypical bearded long-haired leader who kind of looked like me because that would just be too on the nose um, <laughs> but um it's they, they they as as it stands at the moment in the story they are masquerading as an elite self-help cult who have these basically retreats um out in their secluded mansion in the countryside um but when um uh when moya gets in there when she gets infiltrated she discovers that they have disturbing rituals um they're involved in emotional financial and sexual manipulation and um there is a sacrifice element in it as well okay so it'll be a good laugh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well look well done because often you know particularly um when you mention you know irish you know this people try to blend the kind of i suppose the folklore the mythology um and sometimes that can get very grainy and dirty and it can sure. be hard to make everything work so sometimes just being very straight about what it is yeah. um in itself can 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 really help an audience grasp what you what what you're what you're delivering with your with your scripts brilliant that's so great advice. thank you thanks guys thank you very much Connor. now we come to the fifth it's Sinead O'Loughlin from Middleton and uh, she is a writer and director she will introduce and pitch a documentary called a better forest Sinead please when Shunit Jones was stopped by police leaving a state-owned forest near her West Cork home last year, she was covered in sawdust and had a chainsaw in her car. She admitted to chopping down hundreds of trees and was arrested and charged with criminal damage. When asked what motivated the 61-year-old retired biochemist to risk imprisonment, Shunit replied she was creating a better forest. Ireland was once so covered in native trees like oak and ash, it was said a squirrel could travel from Malinhead to Mizzenhead without touching the ground. Now only 10% of Ireland is covered in trees and only 1% of those are native. The rest are Sitka spruce, a non-native species planted for timber on Irish state land. So what? There's still trees, what's the difference? That's where biodiversity comes in. 
the delicate ecosystem that makes native forests vibrant and teeming with life. Sitka spruce plantations smother the forest bed and kale biodiversity, creating silent dead zones. Shunad was removing these spruce and replacing them with native trees because she believes citizens have an urgent duty to protect biodiversity. Scientists warn global biodiversity decline will lead to the extinction of pollinator species and the collapse of human food production. A Better Forest is a timely, engaging documentary of one woman's fight to protect the environment. It's Erin Brockovich meets the farthest. It will appeal to an increasingly environmentally aware audience with high production values to capture the natural soundscape and beauty of the forest. With our unique access to Shunad, A Better Forest will be a compelling cinematic experience. Thank you very much, Sinead. Mary Kate, will you start? Did lovely work there, Sinead. Um, nice timing. You printed it fine <laughs> up there, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, I, if I was to give you a little tip, I'd say reverse it because I thought, like when you said it's Aaron Brockovich, you know, meets the farthest. I was like, oh, put that right at the top, you know, because I would just be like, oh, okay, I really want to see this. Um, so uh, I'm kind of interested in um, Shunad, like 61 is young to be retired, you know, um, but she's out there, like she clearly isn't retired from life, right? So, you know, I tell me more about her as a personality and how did you meet her? Why are you attracted to this story? Sure. Um, so I first became aware of Shunad's uh, court case back in October. I just saw somebody had scanned a news clipping about it to Facebook and it was, um, you know, somebody related to Extinction Rebellion. And so I was just very curious about it. I just thought the story was really, really interesting. Like she'd been doing the project for over 20 years before she got caught. She'd been going in and it was like gorilla. They call it rewilding. And she just it was so um, what I loved about it is like, you know, obviously she's an environmental activist, but she's also a scientist because the science is sound and so I I live in Middleton so I drove to, I found out when her uh, court case the pre presentation of the book of evidence was so I drove to Bantry and then because she was denying the charges it went to trial in February of this year so I was at the court case both days and I got to know her better and obviously then the world fell apart <laughs> but uh, I reconnected with her when I was making the pitch and just to make sure she was still on board and uh, yeah just really looking forward to getting going with it because I I just think it, it's such a great story with such a great character, but then the wider issue I think is really, um, you know, there's a global element there and there's a bigger audience for it. That's fantastic. And I mean, I said this to someone else as well, but like, again, I just feel like I want to sit down and talk to you about this for like two hours. So you've done a great job, right? Thank you. So, thanks. Owen, what's your opinion? Sinead, um, Hi, how's it going? You did a, a really good pitch, I felt. Um, the reason I feel that is because you got me right into that world and you were able to paint a picture uh, of your protagonist um, really, really quickly. Uh, so I could see it instantly. So I thought that was a really, really nice kind of uh, pitch. Um, I have one or two questions and you kind of brought it up in your response to Mary Kate, which is about using this person's um, story to kind of tell a greater narrative about biodiversity in the world. Um, so what's the balance of that? I mean, is in your mind, is the documentary mostly about her and her actions and her story tells us about biodiversity? Or is this just a way in to kind of deal with the meat of the subject, which is that biodiversity is, is um, you know, it's not really happening? Um, I would definitely see it being framed by her story because I just think from the very um, start of it and just her her life in West, like a, it's just a really good kind of framing device. And I think that from the time that she was 
cost to the time that uh, the court case came up and also the outcome of the court case, you know, I think that structurally that gives really good points to go to. Um, I think, I mean, I also have to allow for the fact that part of the reason that I want to is, is in the development, I think that'll come out in, in the sense of, you know, getting to know Shunit, getting to know the area, but all in all, my sense is that Shunit's going to anchor the whole thing. Um, again, I think it's because she has the scientific element as well, because I've already done some homework in terms of like, it would be very important to me. I've worked on research before for documentary theater and for documentary before. And, um, you know, I'd need to have, I, I would want a very much an advisory panel of um, academics who are, you know, scientists with it as well. So that the science is anchored by science with, with the frame of Shunit's story to bring in the kind of character and the kind of color to it. Um, but then, yeah, I, and then I, I just love the, I, that's what hooked me to the whole thing. Uh, within that one story of this one woman in West Cork, you know, taking a personal stand against a forest beside her home, it just touched on, you know, a, a, a way bigger issue that's, uh, you know, quite relevant um, universally. So then I was thinking, okay, this could have an audience. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and one quick question. Uh, what, what is the scientific consensus on biodiversity and her actions? I mean, are, is there going to be dissent within, within um, her debate? Well, again, I'm hoping my research will, will, you know, everything will come out in the wash. But I mean, there's no real argument to say that, like, uh, the real argument is kind of economic policy versus environmental policy, because there's no point as well coming at this from the point of view of, oh, we can't sow trees for timber. It's the idea that we're prioritizing economic policy and it's not paying off. And then we're sacrificing, you know, an opportunity to um, protect biodiversity. So like scientists wouldn't, uh, and that's why I like going at it from a scientific point of view as well, because science is, I'm not a scientist. I never, I didn't even do science in school. And when I watched the farthest, I actually was, I loved how they were able to, um, get anybody on board with the science because they told it through the eyes of the people who are passionate about it. And I find scientists very interesting because, you know, they're just so in love with a very specific part of, of the universe or, and, and they're just experts in it. And they're, they can, especially in the farthest, they can be very passionate talking about the subject. And so like you can, anybody can access that in terms of a, a you know, cinema or documentary. So, um, yeah, I guess they wouldn't, uh, uh, the biodiversity argument is sound, but um, there's a politics, economic thing going on in the background as well that, that needs to be addressed because, you know, that's valid too. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. What do you have to add? Well, like I was just saying, congratulations, Sinead. It was a really great pitch. Um, and again, very, very timely. You found this quite nice hook of again, as I perceived it, but again, as we start to explore it more, I think you'll probably find more within it, this idea of the rights of the individual versus the rights of the greater good or the common man. And, you know, you're probably going to explore that in the idea that, you know, the commercialization of woods and forestry and, and what that really means and what that means we're sacrificing. But at the end of the day, I suppose it's jobs and it's money. So you kind of, kind of, kind of got this interesting a, a dichotomy going on there in terms of your main um, thematic agenda. Um, one thing I was going to ask you was maybe about some of the other characters that might feature in the documentary. I mean, you've talked about scientists and, you know, there's a, there's a, she's being charged. I assume there's a kind of a, a court case. And I assume that would hopefully be the end of your film, whether she wins or loses. Um, but who else do you envision being a, in the film? 
Um, well, I've already spoken to a couple of academics who work in like, um, you know, there's loads of different elements to it in terms of the science of it. They, like it's so there's groundwater and, um, you know, uh, coniferous forests. But I actually I am interested. I, I don't want to say it's going to be like everything, but, you know, you, you start out and you kind of go in and like, but I am interested in the history of the native Irish forest. So I do think that there's room there to speak to like historians as well. And, uh, you know, just to find, cause like the history of the native Irish woodland is really interesting. Like how it's, um, you know, the time periods it's lived through, how it's been influenced by different factors. Um, so I think really, you know, I would have my advisory panel and I think that through the research and development part, I think I would begin to identify the different um, characters who, you know, would feature in it and who would bring those elements to it. But really, I have to say, um, when I talk about it, I've kind of realised that there are two characters. It's Shunid and it's the Irish forest. And I'm kind of like treating them both, um, you know, separately. So they both have their own individual narrative. And I think they're the most interesting characters in it. Well, and if I may weigh in, you need the apologists for Quilcher. You need somebody like that. So you need saying, this is why what she did was wrong and why what we're doing is right. You know, sure, you'll sure. find some tension, you know? And just to say that obviously with permission to film and things like that, just to, you know, worst case scenario, if we weren't given access to particular areas of land, there's, you know, there's native forest on private land that we could access. There's different projects around Ireland that we can access that we've kind of looked into because um, obviously without the access to these forests, uh, the, the project would be hindered. Thank you very much. Thank Sine. you. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thank you. The sixth contestant is Jennifer Davidson. She's from Dublin and uh, she has spent 10 years working for a number of Ireland's independent production companies, securing commissions for a wide range of programs. Currently, she's writing for Fair City. She is an experienced screenwriter and she will present a drama called My Brilliant Embarrassing Dad. Jennifer, please. Thanks. So what do you do when your dad tells the postman that he's fat or takes his shirt off in the middle of mass? Welcome to Cloda's world. You know those cool 20-something students whose life is all about taking risks? Yeah, that is totally not Cloda. So dad was always a joker, but since his brain injury, he has no filter. Mum is busy working double shifts in the local nursing home. Her little sister is just too young to get it. And her big brother only comes home to get his washing done and obviously to tell Cloda everything that she's doing wrong. So Cloda gives up her J1 summer to stay home in North Mayo to run the family's failing seaside amusements and to fix her dad. What could possibly go wrong? So dad decides to reunite his old Johnny Logan tribute act. He ropes in Jamie, the cute guy next door, who is also Claude's secret crush. But when dad spends all their money on white suits and music equipment, Claude is furious. Dad feels bad, but in the end, the dad rockers save the day, they save the amusements from bankruptcy, and as dad pushes Cloda out of her comfort zone, she learns to let go, to take risks, and maybe even to fall in love. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. And Sarah, will you start? Sure. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Sarah. 
great hook into your premise. I, I liked the fact that you kind of set us up with a couple of questions. That's always a great way to grab people's attention um, and to, to pull us into the film that you're telling. Is it, it, It's a film, right? Or it's a TV? It's, it's a film. And it's aimed at kind of, who would you say your audience are for your film? So it's in that kind of mode of like Dumplin, um, I guess TV-wise, My Mad Fat Diary. So those kind of teen rom-com coming of age films. Great. Now, I think it's a really interesting um, audience and it's a genre that we haven't done a lot in Ireland. And I think it's something that we need to think about collectively as, as, as the stories that we're putting on screen and who they're directed at. So like enjoyed your pitch. I think there was quite a lot of plot in there. And I think you probably had an extra 10 seconds or so that you could have sold us a little bit more. Um, but there was some, some lovely moments in there. So I could I could uh, see Clodagh's dilemma and I could I, I, I enjoyed some of those uh, moments with her dad as well. So well done. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah and Owen. Jennifer, how are you? Hi. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good, good pitch, good project. Uh, it, it did remind me a lot of a film I was involved in a couple of years ago called Run and Jump, uh, which I don't know if you saw. Um, it was uh, it was a film starring Will Forte and uh, Maxine Peake, where the, the father of a family has a, a brain injury and uh, kind of devolves back into a, a, almost being a toddler. Um, so perhaps worth watching just to see what works and what doesn't work and how to kind of distinguish. Um, it, it certainly feels that the best of the benefit this project is, is to ensure that people know it's a comedy um, because I, I, I think it was mentioned it was a drama so make sure that people don't expect the drama when perhaps this feels a bit more heightened um, with its with its Johnny Logan tribute band and all that sort of stuff um, where I think this will work best um, and, and jumping on Sarah's point that you know we, we don't really make those kind of films and maybe we should be making those kind of feel-good fun funny films you know um, sure. Certainly, you know, Dating Amber is an example that's that's done really well, um, which was able to capitalize on that. Um, I would, the only thing I would also say very quickly is, just, you know, Saving Amusement Parks feels a bit old now. and doesn't really, you know, doesn't really feel modern or that important personally. So I would see if you could find another kind of goal um, that might be slightly more contemporary. Um, but besides that, I, I, I very much like the tone and I like the world. Um, and I think it has potential to be quite commercial. Great, thank you. Thank you, Mary Kate. Yeah, lovely work, Jennifer. Um, very engaging speakers, so that's great. Um, and you know, I think your title communicates that it's going to be a comedy. I had a couple of questions. Um, like Sarah, I would just echo, and you know, maybe it's my attention span, but there was a point where I was like, "That's all the plot my head has room for." And what I wanted to know was your connection to the material. Um, but also I, maybe I zoned out It's no work, you know, when you're in the second half, it gets wonderful. Is dad mentally ill, you know, because it, it, I wasn't sure if he has a bipolar disorder or like Owen was saying, has he had a brain injury? No, it's a, it's a brain injury. Yeah. Okay. All right. So he's become disinhibited, right? So he's become disinhibited. He has no filter. So, and I guess personal connections. So six years ago now, my own brother had a brain injury. Okay. And one of the biggest things was he totally lost his filter. So it's kind of like dealing with a toddler or a very drunk person all the time where mm -hmm. they just, there's no filter. They see it, they think it, they say it. 
Okay, so my own experience of somebody like that is that it can be screamingly funny, but it's also very painful. Absolutely. And we want to know that part of it as well. So like that's our journey, presumably, you know. So and for that reason, I, I might just take brilliant out of the title. I think it would be my embarrassing dad, you know, because if you say brilliant, I already know she likes him as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. anyway, it's that's a tiny note, but just it's a really great pitch. It's a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Now the seventh, Brian McIntyre from Dublin, and uh, he's a journalist. He has an MA in screenwriting. He has written quite a few scripts, and uh, his project is called Riptide. It's a drama, a mystery drama. Will you start, please, Brian? Okay, thanks. Sorry. Um, how far would you go to atone for having hurt somebody really badly? Riptide is a drama mystery set in Salt Hill County, Galway. And Riptide is a metaphor. Thematically, it's about the uh, ripples from the choices we make and the lies we can never shake that come back like a dangerous aftercurrent, like a riptide and pull you back into the sea. And our, our lead character is Dan Fogarty. He's a regional reporter in his thirties and also in a career rut. He's on the outs with his father because he uh, blames him for not telling him early enough about his late mother's terminal illness. So one day he's asked to write a story about the grieving process. And he uh, focuses on this young woman, Deirdre O'Dwyer, who was killed in a car crash, age 22. Deirdre's father opens up to Dan, but Deirdre's mother didn't hear about the story. And it's partly Dan's fault. So she blames him for reopening old wounds. Word spreads fast about Dan's mistake. And so feeling remorseful and uh, basically feeling kind of worthless as a journalist, he discovers that there's a discrepancy in the official accounts of how she died. So to make amends with the mother, he investigates further and he discovers a web of deceit and lies within the community. And he also sees that what he thought was a local story has much more uh, national implications, major implications. Sarah, you are based in Galway. You, you know Salt Hill, so please start. I don't know. Why is it when everybody crosses the Shannon they get killed? I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well done, Brian. Great. Uh, again, really good pitch. Again, I love the fact that you opened it with kind of statements or questions that pulled us right into your world. Um, and obviously, you set uh, Dan up particularly well as a character. We kind of understand the point where he is in his life. We kind of understand the dilemma that he's facing. Um, and again, you don't focus too much on plot, um, again, which kind of helps kind of build the intrigue and the mystery and wants us to ask more questions. So I think you did really well there in terms of your pitch. Um, my question to you, I suppose, is just what is at stake for Dan, really, as he goes on this journey? Because, you know, I'm just trying to figure that out. Well, he's, he's just feeling um, professionally kind of spent and he's, he's, he's in a career rut. And uh, if I'm honest, uh, it's based on something that happened to me when I was an intern in Little Rock, Arkansas at the Associated Press. And I was doing a story about this young man who uh, was killed in a car crash. And uh, it was in the paper, you know, a few days later. And I talked to the family, but um, I never heard that there was a step family involved as well. And they were really upset. So I was upset as a result. And one of my colleagues said, you know, uh, it's not entirely your fault, whatever. 
So I, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to explore how would you atone for something like that and kind of almost for therapy for myself, you know, sorry. Mm. Mm. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mary-Kate. Yeah, hi, Brian, lovely to see you there. Um, you know what, what you just said to Sarah is how you should start this pitch, you oh. know, and like that could be true for a lot of the pitches, you know, um, you know, also Sinead, when she starts talking about her personal connection to her project um, and it would make it like, although you did a beautiful job and I love your metaphor, that was lovely of a riptide that pulls you back in when you're trying to move forward. Yeah. But like my note to myself was like, you know, when I worked at newspapers, journalists were so hard bitten, like, you know, remorse didn't enter into it so your personal connection to that when you were a rookie and your colleagues were going ah never mind you know don't bother but you were like no you still actually had some humanity left <laughs> you know um like it's a really really interesting story so i would have loved to have heard that but sure look this is how pitches work there's a bit of back and forth for us as well so thank you so much great work thank you mary kate owen Brian, hey, how's it going? Um, so yeah, it's it's you know it was a good pitch. Um, I totally agree with Mary Kate, and she, she stole my my good feedback, which is <laughs> using um using that personal element there because it, it just you invest in you as a as a writer as much as the story. Um, but going back to Sarah's point, uh, the, the slight advice I would give is um you could you could push your your main character down a bit more. You know, one of my favorite films of all time is Ace in the Hole. And, you know, that's a great story about journalistic integrity or, or lack thereof. So you could probably make Dan a little bit less likable, actually, and, and give him a greater journey to go on and a, a bigger realization to make. Um, and I think then your story might pop a little bit more. Um, but besides that, I thought it was a really good pitch. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now we come to a writing team, Ross Wright and Tom Berkeley, but Ross is the one pitching. They are from Belfast in Northern Ireland. The project title is Songbird. It's a drama which deals also with music. We look forward to hear how this works. Songbird is the belated coming of age tale of John Joe, a young man caught up in the violent new wave paramilitary culture of his East Belfast council estate. But behind closed doors, John Joe is a gifted self-taught musician with a remarkable talent as a folk singer-songwriter. And when his gift is discovered by an unlikely ally, John Joe secretly enters Belfast trad music scene, where the beauty and honesty of his original songs see him flourish. He falls in love with Sarah, a young Asian-Irish violinist who champions his musical ambitions, but soon the toxic tribalism and xenophobic actions of his peer group threaten everything. The suicide of his best friend sees John Joe relapse to his old lifestyle, turning his back on his relationship and his music. With nowhere left to hide, will John Joe silence his gift or will he decide he has something worth singing about? In Songbird, we want to marry the grit of social realism with the poetic beauty of folk music. It's calm with horses meets inside Lewin Davis. This is England meets once. Goodwill hunting with Matt Damon on guitar and Ben Affleck in the Orange Order. But imagine a soundtrack composed by a Laura Marling or a Damien Rice underscoring an overlooked corner of Irish cinema. The working class, unionist experience, warts and all. You know, Tom Waits said, folk music is beautiful melodies telling us terrible things. And that's what Songbird is. It's a story of a beautiful gift trying to survive in a troubled world. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. 
Very good. Uh, Owen. Ross, uh, congratulations. That was a, that was an excellent pitch. Um, I, I think, you know, music is, is so powerful and often underutilized in, in cinema. And I, I think you found a really, really interesting way of dealing with the troubles, you know, and using the same kind of dramatic tension that you, you see by giving it a fresh uh, coat of paint by using music and trad. And all those references you gave are really interesting um, and, and actually quite spot on. Um, what do you, where do you, where's the story end for you and, and what do you want it to say for the world? Sure, yeah, um, thanks Owen. It's, um, I guess it's a, it's a journey piece, a character study of, of John Joe and his sort of, um, his track of, it's that question of will, will he embrace this potential and rise above the, the um, kind of where, where he's from and, and the sort of uh, lifestyle he's part of. For me, it comes from a very sort of personal place. I was in a, a terrible punk band, to be honest, when I was younger. Um, and it kind of was about what, what music does for you. Um, as, a, as a young person, it's, it's the sort of aspiration and the dream to, to climb out and beyond. And I think that both looking back and in the present day, like it's, it's about the way paramilitary culture works in East Belfast and in council estates. I think so many young people get really caught up in that. And this is about, uh, sort of the decision for somebody with a, as I say, a remarkable talent that that sort of gift that's been almost bestowed upon him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I guess his 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 final his final question is, does he does he rise above it? Does he move on from it? And that sort of uh, the 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 balance of the movie is giving him putting him in predicaments where he's got to make that choice, you know. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Sarah, what do you think? Um, I think your abilities as wordsmith definitely came through there, Ross, and um, your background in theatre um, certainly came through. I mean, some of those, I was writing them down feverishly going, oh my God, I should have to remember that, you know. So congratulations on, on some of that. And you've managed to, to, to pull in all the, the kind of classical elements of cinema into, into a lovely pitch, beat music, a political backdrop, a coming of age you know, an interesting central character. I think you probably could have brought John Joe out a little bit more in your pitch, you know, um, the obstacles that are in his way. I mean, you, you kind of, you, you drop in a couple of bits about his best friend and, and um, his love interest. And obviously that this is just a 90 second pitch. So, you know, we got a flavor of all the things that are going on there. Um, I don't really have any kind of big comments because I think, I mean, I was so satisfied by the story that you told that I just kind of want to hear more. So I would say kind of a big congrats. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that pitch and I kind of got a great sense of, of the story that you're trying to tell and your world and the flavour and the sounds, which are very important as well. Thank you, sir. Mary Kate? Uh, yeah, Ross, I'll just echo what the others have said. That was a really professional pitch, you know, and uh, like when you're pitching in the future, you can go as personal as you like. You know, it was lovely when you said, you know, I was when honestly a terrible punk rock band. Um, the one note that I do have, I'm just like agreeing with my colleagues, you've done a bang up job. But the one question that I have is where is the struggle for the character. I mean, I know that there's like, well, there's tribalism versus like realizing your talent, but as an audience member, I'm just gonna go, well, realize your talent. Don't go into, you know, paramilitary violence. There's no question for me. But I was thinking of something like Billy Elliot. So in Billy Elliot, you've got like, well, should you allow people to tell you, you know, ballet is gendered and you know, you're just a little girl. No, you shouldn't. But the most heartbreaking scene in Billy Elliot is when in order for him to realize his dreams, his father's gonna break a strike. 
And that's when you go, oh, actually, no. You know, so what I want to see is like, that there's a, the setup is not versus realizing your talent, which of course you should do, and going into violence, which of course you shouldn't do. You know, so I'm wondering if there, and Inside Lewin Davis is a really interesting um, comparison because I was talking about this with a friend of mine who is a musician and saying like, at the end of Inside Lewin Davis, I don't know if he really had enough talent to make it. Now that's not where you're going. Your guy is touched by the hand of God and he's amazingly talented. But what could possibly put me as an audience member in tension going, no, following your career is the wrong thing to do here. Yes, yeah, sure. If I, you know, like that's where I, that's the question I'd ask you, I guess. Sure. I think that was a massive question for us as well, because it, otherwise you're right. It just becomes frustrating. Like, go for it, man. <laughs> What's your problem? Um, so where we're at with that, obviously, as I say, 90 seconds there, um, didn't get this in, but uh, a major relationship in this film is with uh, John Jonah's older brother. Mm -hmm. um, they have this sort of relationship where, the brother is kind of at the center of this paramilitary culture and John Joe has sort of become the sort of unofficial paternal figure to his brother's child who is like a you know a seven-year-old girl um, and and he feels a massive sort of uh, that's really holding him and he feels like a real responsibility with that similarly his relationship with his mother you know he doesn't have a father figure himself his relationship with his mother she struggles with alcoholism so he feels like a real he is the man sort of holding this household together as it were and he knows that it's it's part of this sort of um repressed uh community where to pursue his own ambitions and his own dreams would be selfish almost that is one side of it and then there's also as you said the billy elliott kind of side of it of the sort of softness of of folk uh, of um, folk music against the sort of abrasive nature of of him as a as a character and his his violence you know it's it's in in the same kind of cam cam with horses way you know where it's like sort of you've got that character arm who's a, a really sort of brutal character John Joe was dragged into that world so they really clash with each other so I, I guess yeah he's got the responsibility in his home life and then also sort of that that juxtaposition if that answers thank you thank you Mikey. very much Ross. thank you the ninth contestant is thomas ryan from belfast and uh, he has written feature films trampoline twice shy and uh, he's also writing an online series for the bbc this time Hello, uh, I'm here to pitch my next feature as a writer-director, Fred and Ginger. I am looking to team up with the right production company to help me make this happen. I see this as a crowd-pleasing commercial comedy in the vein of The Commitments meets Billy Elliot. Um, the film centers on Lennox, who is a teenager of color who yearns to escape his current difficult situation that he's living in. He dreams of running away and becoming a dancer. The only problem is Lennox can't dance. Um, he comes across um, an ad for a talent show, uh, which has a life-changing cash prize. He decides to enter, but in order to do so, he needs a dance partner. So he puts an ad out, uh, which reads, Fred seeks his ginger. He's stunned when Maya, uh, an asylum seeker from direct provision, uh, auditions for him and blows him away with her tap dancing skills. Despite their differences um, culturally, despite their different skill sets, interference from bullies, rival dancers, they manage to uh, believe in each other, they believe in themselves, they train as much as they can, they make it, they 
barely scrape through to the final by falling upwards. Um, they wow the audience, but unfortunately don't win because of the judges' private prejudices against them. I think that this movie is a special movie um, that will celebrate our differences. It'll showcase diversity in Ireland, um, the best upcoming talent that we have. It'll make audiences laugh, cry. Um, I just think it, it's going to be a great project and need to find the right people to get involved. Thank you, Thomas. Mary Kate. Yeah, everybody did really, really well with the timing. Well done. So, so I was really, really engaged in that, you know, and Fred Seeks' ginger is just gorgeous. And uh, yeah, I love the idea, like, you know, of celebrating diversity, especially, you know, we make films for an international audience, but they still think that we live in the quiet man era, you know. So I love that idea um, of those stories. Um, I had one question, which is like, if he can't dance, like, you know what does she teach him to dance or do they figure out a way of dancing where she's doing all the flashy stuff and he's just holding her or yeah so like what's how does that work yeah she just unlocks that belief um that he needs to have in himself so his family his friends people in school everyone puts him down because he's different he wants to dance no one believes in him so i think that that always affected him and he believes that he can't dance until he meets maya and then she brings out in him and how old are they It'd be 16. Okay. Did you say that? No, so I don't know. Then, then tell us that up top, because I was wondering how old he was. But I guess they were young. That's brilliant. Really nice work. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Kate. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Hey, how's it um, going? Again, really lovely pitch. I mean, totally very attracted to this project again, because it's that more lighthearted type of fair, which I kind of do think we should be making a little bit more of. And I think particularly as we move out of this pandemic, I think audiences may move towards kind of more lighthearted um, entertainment, fair, you know, with, with a very powerful message at the centre of it. I think audiences will start to seek that kind of material out. I might be wrong. Uh, I'm not very good at predicting trends. Um, I have two questions, actually. One is, um, I suppose, what has inspired this material for you? Or, you know, where did you find this story? Um, and the other is the kind of conflict that... Uh, Lennox and Maya have because generally in these kind of stories there's a moment where they're pulled apart and have to come back together again so what is that that conflict for them? Sure well um, what made me want to make this movie was um, just the fact that I, I want to have something to say I think so much work goes into making any movie um, that it has to be has to say something and I think that um, making a story about believing in yourself, uh, realizing your full potential. I think that's very important. I think um, if I could do that in a way that I can incorporate um, dance numbers, musical numbers, uh, even better. So I think that uh, I just want to make something commercial, something crowd pleasing um, that has a relevant message at the center of it. So that was the genesis of this. And I think that um, given the current climate as well, um, I think it's important that we um, have the characters be from um underrepresented backgrounds and um shine a light on that so we can hopefully start a conversation um in a compassionate light about these sort of sensitive uh, societal issues that are happening at the moment in terms of the sort of the crux at the end of the second act um that would be when they lose the uh towards the end of the second act they, they would lose the competition uh, i want them to lose the competition because the judges are a little bit racist they've uh, got that against them they don't, want to, they don't want to give it the prize, the cash prize to people from that background. So um, then the third act, uh, Lennox tries to find a way um, 
to uh, get the two of them to escape uh, their current situation. But it ends with uh, Maya um, telling him that, look, they have each other now, they have friends uh, in, in each other that they didn't have at the start of the movie. And that's enough. And this is the start of their journey. You know, so long as they're together, uh, they can kind of get through anything. And, and so long as they keep dreaming, they can get through anything. Thank you very much, Owen. Um, yeah, Tom, Thomas, how are you? Um, I, I mean, I, I think you're, you're ticking a lot of the right boxes here in terms of just, you know, finding ways to address, you know, major issues, but in a, in a kind of a nice warm way. Um, and again, you know, you don't see a huge amount of cinema coming out of Ireland that, that does that yet. Um, so there was lots of lovely things that remind me a little bit of um, the Silver Linings Playbook, yeah. um, which is a film that deals with mental health, kind of, and but, you know, uses a kind of the structure of dance to bring two disparate people together. I think the idea of loss is, is important and you, you definitely emphasize that, but in your pitch, you should be emphasizing the game as well, which is what you just said to Sarah, which is yes, they lost the competition, but in a way it shouldn't really be about the competition. It should be about how they change and the friendship they find along the way. And and um, I think that's really important. So I would just suggest inserting that a little bit into your pitch. Okay, thanks very much, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you. The last contestant, Sarah Fenelon from Ennis Carey. She has written a feature animation and also a TV pilot, and she hopes this will be produced. Her project title is Darlington Academy for Young Girls, and it's a horror film. It's a horror movie. Sarah, let us shiver. All right. Hello, everyone. Um, so Darlington Academy for Girls is an all-female prison break story that follows two sisters plot their escape from boarding school with life and death stakes. Um, based on a visceral nightmare I had the night before my 28th birthday, uh, this is Suspiria meets uh, Shawshank Redemption, and it's about the ultimate Achilles heel to power, blood. Um, you see, Darlington Academy is no ordinary school. Behind closed doors, a dangerous program of indoctrination is taking place, and the order are brainwashing girls in the masses with their national socialist ideology. Sound far-fetched? Hitler wouldn't think so. Um, we first meet Ellery on her first day of school. She's 14 and terrified, but she's not alone. Her older sister, Tori, also goes to Darlington and has a plan to get them both out. Now, a key component to the story is the unique layout of the school inside. Designed like a labyrinth that draws you farther and farther inside, the school is made up of layers. The first is called the innocent, which is where Ellery resides. Once proven guilty, you move to the sinful, followed by the disciplinary, followed by punishment. Finally, at its core is the center, and only a handful of students have ever survived. Tori is one of them. The catch, the only way out is through. So in the finale, um, the girls are forced to face the ultimate punishment and fight one another to the death. Tori takes her own life to save her sister, allowing Ellery to escape at last. Um, Darlington Academy is a horror film whose horror lies in the nature of what's happening as much as how it happened. Thank you, Sarah. It's amazing. You all make it in exactly 90 seconds. <laughs> Sarah, to the next Sarah. What do you think? Hi, Sarah. Thanks for that. Uh, very fascinated by that actually is I'm um, very interested to kind of figure out the matrix of the rules of this world yeah and um, you did a good job of trying to um sell that to us but also giving us enough room to maybe ask lots of questions and try to figure out the machinations of this world with you um 
again, love the fact that it's kind of an all-female cast as well, or ensemble cast, but based on your pitch. And obviously horror is such a commercial genre right now. Um, I definitely think we need we need more women writing horror as well to bring a different point of view into that world. So I think there's lots of really great selling points there. Um, I suppose... I would I wonder why you went for that age range within your characters. Is it to in to um is does, is that a reflection of the audience you hope to attract to the film, or is that obviously it's a kind of a coming of age story as well, and it's a you know boarding or a school set story. That was one question I had, and the other question was why would parents send their kids to this school? Yeah, totally. That's one of the first questions I'm always asked. Um, <laughs> with this Damn, I'm not that original. Yeah. Um, and I, so I was inspired, I suppose that this is an anxiety dream sort of gone wrong, but um, one of the things that inspired it is Hitler's youth and the, my fascination with what was happening um, in Germany at the time. And there's actually a, a female version of Hitler's youth, which was called the Brigade of German Women, um, which people are less familiar with. And one of the reasons that everyone didn't mind sending their children to that was because it was an honor and parents were delighted that their child had been selected this is a privilege to be picked. And um, the fact that two girls from the same family got into this school is, uh, is amazing. So mm. that's one of the reasons. Um, then I, I suppose with the age range, it, it goes back to the photos that I have seen of, of Hitler's youth. And um, I wanted to set this in a boarding school, but it's more like a state penitentiary um, than it is a regular school. And the the layers of are, are almost like levels if, if this was a game the girls have to get past each level um in order to get to the center so that they can get out um and so i wouldn't say that it's for a 14 year old audience i think this is an older audience that is going to be quite terrified um but yeah it, it is that coming of age um sort of two sisters bonding like a 14 year old and a 16 year old coming together to mm -hmm. uh, take on corruption. Great, thank you. Um, you did a great job and it's a really original idea. Um, going to boarding school was one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to me. And I don't actually mean that as a joke, you know, um, but, and I think it's really interesting. You started beautifully saying that like, it was this dream that you had. I would be interested in exploring actually, you know, the metaphor of it. That like when you go to a very posh boarding school, you're sort of being molded to be a particular thing that serves society. So male or female, you're being fed into. Um, but the payoff is that you make all these good connections and you know, you're going to be privileged um, as you enter adulthood, but it's stolen. Like one of the things that really shocked me about boarding school was how these young women, I was 16 and so were they, were already like snobs, you know, and uh, they were already like really big into, you know, party politics and things like that. And I was like, why aren't you socialists? You know, why don't you want to change the world, you know? And, you know, there were 16 year olds who wanted fur coats and a ring on their finger. And I was like, I want a string of lovers to, you know, travel the world. So I'm just, I'd be interested in that aspect of it when Sarah asked, what's the payoff, you know, in going to these schools? Like, you know, so I, that, that's just the bit that, and, and again, I got a, a tiny bit, it, it jolted me when you said, does this sound unlikely? Hitler wouldn't think so. I was just like, 
oh, I, so I think the way you answered Sarah's question was better, you know, saying, okay. you know, I got interested, I had this anxiety dream, but I think the germ of the idea was, again, so like, but it's like, if you sell your soul, what, what do you get for it, you know, like, and, and, and this is a literal version of that, um, and I really like the idea of like that, the worst thing that could happen is they have to fight each other to the death, right, yeah. um, but um, again, I just, I would love to sit down and talk to you about your project for 20 minutes, so yeah it's, it's meaty thank you hi yes sarah kate um i mean i i really like horror generally and i i very much like elevated horror um and i'm i'll ask you two questions and the first is what type of horror this is because this could be comedy horror and um, it could be satirical um or it could be blood and guts kind of you know very very straight horror or it could be something more elevated where you play with class and I wasn't quite sure where it quite landed there. So it's worth bearing that in mind. And the other question I had is, it seems that your, your protagonist was Ellery, right? Um, but I didn't get a sense of her. I think you moved on to the sister a bit more. So I'm kind of curious about what her journey is throughout the story. Okay, great. Um, well, so in terms of horror, um, I, I see this more as like a suspense-driven horror with uh, as much of the horror goriness happening off screen as possible, um, probably up until the climax of the film. Um, something like Get Eyes or Us or um, Suspiria, which I find terrifying up until the last sort of 15 minutes is, is very suspense driven. Um, Ellery is, is the, the younger, obviously, sister and very much looks up to Tori, Victoria. Um, to kind of get her out but the thing that I was really interested in exploring is this idea of family sacrifice and like what you're willing to do for your your parents or are you willing to stand in front of a bullet for your siblings or your friends and I find that it's it's the that their bond and their sibling relationship is what is going to ultimately undermine this um, sort of tyrannical school and and get the word out of what's actually happening there um, so yeah they're at each layer that they get through in the process, I want the character development and their relationship to be kind of uncovered in a new way. Um, so yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. And that was the 2020 Galway Film Flaw pitching competition. Our winner was Alice McDowell, and as well as the prize money from the Galway Film Flaw, her project Rain Song has since been selected as a recipient of Screen Ireland's The Voice Fund for concept development. That's all for this week. Remember to look for our winter season announcement next week. Remember also that our feature film submissions are open for the 2021 Galway Film Fla, taking place from the 6th to the 11th of July. Short film submissions will open early in the new year. If you don't already, follow us at Galway Film on all the usual social media channels. And Nolly Connor from me and the entire Film Fla team. August Offaly and Fivashadi of Koba. Salon. Two.